You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. Harry Cole is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Cole. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. The best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It was the hell of a scandal, too. Look, did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him. Just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. Uh, it had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've been involved in some work that I think, I think will be used to hurt these two young people. Responsible. I, I'm not responsible. I'm... You're not supposed to feel anything about it. You're just supposed to do it. Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen. Not look. Not feel. Not care. Yes. How'd you get this phone number? Do you have secrets, Harry? I know. Tell me about yourself. Your secrets. I don't have any secrets. Don't get involved in this, Mr. Cole. These tapes are dangerous. Come on, Harry. Show and tell. How do you do it? Why are you asking me all these questions? Gene Hackman is Harry Call in The Conversation. There is nothing private about The Conversation. Listen. My name is Harry Call. Can you hear me? Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Vincenzo Natale. Well, hello, Mike. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jamie Duvall. Thank you very much. I'm... Looking forward to our conversation. We continue November 2019 with a look at 1974's The Conversation. Sandwiched between the first two Godfather films, The Conversation is writer-director Francis Ford Coppola's paying to European art films of the 1960s, most notably Antonioni's blow-up. Instead of swinging London, however, The Conversation is set in San Francisco and stars Gene Hackman as Harry Call, a schlubby nudnik whose life revolves around audio surveillance, his own privacy, and violating the privacy of others. Of course, we'll be discussing spoilers about this film as we go on, so if you haven't seen The Conversation, well, you really need to. Please stop the podcast and go watch the film. We will still be here waiting, watching, and listening. Vincenzo, when was the first time you saw The Conversation, and what did you think? Well, I have to go back into my shady adolescence, and while other kids are probably doing drugs, my friends and I 
would get together on the weekends and watch 10 or 12 movies, a kind of primitive early form of a button-a-thon. And I believe the first time I saw the conversation was during one of those 24-hour video parties, which is probably the worst possible way to watch the film. But I remember liking it. I don't think I... I just don't think I was like had all my mental faculties. So I don't think I fully grasped it at the time, but I I did enjoy it. Yeah. I can't imagine watching this with a bunch of friends, especially rowdy teenagers, just like, yeah, let's watch the conversation. (laughs) Probably sandwiched somewhere between Conan the Barbarian and the hunger. So how about you, Jamie? Well, I was born in 73. So uh, in, in terms of the 70s cinema in general, I got turned on to it sometime during the eighties. And when I first watched the conversation during that decade, I thought, man, this is right up my alley because I loved the character studies of the seventies. And, and this was right there with Bobby Dupuis and five easy pieces or, uh, Sonny and dog day or Travis and taxi driver. It was a great character study. And I also loved the paranoid thrillers from that decade. So it was right in my wheelhouse. It's one of the great films, I think. I don't remember when I first saw this one, but I remember, I think, reading about it beforehand and just reading, oh, yeah, there were two Francis Ford Coppola movies up for Best Picture in 1974. That would have been when, was it 70? Yeah, 74 was when Godfather 2 was up and when uh, the conversation was up for an Oscar as well. And I was just like, what? What do you mean? What do you mean there was a movie between the two Godfather films? They shot those things almost back to back. How could there be another movie in between there? And I think I ended up renting it at Blockbuster and was just completely blown away. I love this movie, and it is one that I don't necessarily go back to too often because it just left such an indelible impression upon me the first time I saw it. But each time I watch it, I get a little bit more out of it, and I really appreciate the way that this whole thing is put together. And this is Francis Ford Coppola coming at this. He allegedly wrote an early version in the 60s. He actually got a little inspiration from Irving Kirshner, who was talking about uh, a surveillance guy, and kind of, it's like he took the idea of the guy who comes in and leaves the tapes and what is that guy's life versus the main area of the story where it'd be two people plotting an assassination of somebody or, you know, just all of these machinations of this really intriguing plot. But no, let's focus on the guy who comes in and brings the tapes and leaves those tapes for the man in charge. And I love that. I love that we, he kind of peels away everything else and goes after this smaller character and focuses that lens on him and just makes this whole movie all about that one tiny character, but blows up his life. It's that moment when Coppola was just on fire. And, um, you know, it's that whole period. In fact, I'm fascinated by American zoetrope and of everyone that was surrounded it and it's sort of rise and fall. And, um, but this film is sort of the, the quietest of, I guess the four movies that he made in that period ending with apocalypse now. And, and probably the one that is referred to the least, but I think in some ways is the one that stands the test of time, the best, or at least feels the most relevant. And when I watched it again for this podcast, I was really struck by how, I guess anything that came out during the Watergate era seems relevant now, but 
um, but how particularly pertinent it was to this moment historically, and also how I don't know that there was another film at that time or prior to that time that was really about information technology and and about a character's obsession with technology. It, it feels startlingly current and relevant. Right. It's not like blow up where photography had been around for over a hundred years. And it's not necessarily the technology of photography that our main character is concerned about. It's more what he actually has captured on the photos. And with this, the technology of recording audio, which again, I know had been around for a while, at least uh, around the turn of the century, that that the technology of it and the way that we hear things differently was so central to this. Yeah, the technology of it is interesting to me too, especially, you know, examining it parallel to something like uh, Blowout, which is uh, kind of the, the, the euphemism for filmmaking and, and what these, what these different capturing devices, what they can reveal, how they can manipulate your perception of them, that kind of thing. But I was really taken with just the theme, just the, the, the character and, and the themes of the film. And it's interesting to me. I don't know if, if this insight will go anywhere, but, um, you know, he is desperate to not get involved. And this is a period of time in American history where, you know, there's great, turmoil. And I think the movies reflected that in in a very special way. And then you compare that to something like Chinatown, where that lead character does get involved, but by the nature of him getting involved, he makes it worse. And so sometimes I'm confused by 70s cinema. Is it saying it's better not to get involved? (laughs) You know, uh, it's a fascinating kind of dynamic to me. He's been burned once before, and I'm glad that you brought Blow out into this conversation because there are a lot of parallels for me, and especially that whole thing of John Travolta having worked for the police and setting up the guy with the wire, and then he starts to sweat, and the uh, machine itself starts to kind of torture him, and he ends up blowing his cover and getting killed. And it sounds like, not necessarily the exact same thing, but it sounds like something happened to Harry, and I believe it has to do with that whole thing of the the uh, Teamsters and the family that uh, ends up getting killed by mistake the Teamster boss thinks that his accountant has blown this whole thing wide open as far as this fake charity thing. And Harry is the one that actually helped record this conversation that uh, ends up being blamed on somebody else. And so I think he has that backstory, much like Jack Torrance does, that um, he's been tortured um, uh, emotionally by this, and now he doesn't want to get involved. It's like that uh, once-bitten kind of thing. He does not want to get his hands dirty with this. Is it Jack Torrance, or is that The Shining? Oh, nope. You're absolutely right. Jack Torrance is The Shining. Jack Terry, thank you. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting to see both of those filmmakers, and I guess if you include Antonioni, you know, those three filmmakers tackling a very, very similar concept and kind of going off in quite radically different directions. 
Yeah, one dealing with the visual, one dealing with the audio, and the other dealing with both. I love the whole way that Jack Terry has to get the pictures and the sound and match those two up together before he can kind of really get the full picture of what happened with that conspiracy. And with this one, I appreciate that not only is he uncovering more of the audio as he moves along, but also reinterpreting it as he moves along or saying maybe there's more there than I thought. You know, the first time he hears it, he doesn't even care. He doesn't, the, when the actual recording is going on, he kind of gets into it a little bit with the John Cazale character, Stan, and it's just like, yeah, no, I don't really need to know any of this stuff. I'm just concerned about getting a good recording. Who's interested in these two anyway? I don't know for sure. The Justice Department? No. I figure it must be the Infernal Revenue. The tapes always put me to sleep. Since when are you here to be entertained, my dear? Sometimes it's nice to know what they're talking about. I don't care what they're talking about. All I want is a nice, fat recording. It's such a great film, not only because it's almost the perfect movie as a film, but if if you think about what it would take to actually write that film and successfully pull it off. It's an incredibly difficult movie because Harry Call is such an unlikable character and such an impenetrable character. For anyone who's ever written a screenplay, <laughs> you very quickly learn that it's if you're writing an unlikable character, it's just about the hardest kind of screenplay to write. And and yet it completely works. And and Harry Call becomes this utterly fascinating and actually sympathetic guy and i think is probably one of gene hackman's best performances ever this movie really draws upon coppola's really impressive prowess as a screenwriter like you said it's led by very interior character so a lot of the a lot of the nuance of the thing that that coppola puts into the script reveals more about that character but you might miss it on first viewing this last viewing of it, I thought, oh, how did I forget that he has the strong belief in God and he goes to church and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, that could be explained by, you know, he might have caused this great tragedy that led him to to move to the other side of the country and uh, and he might have needed it for solace. But then I thought, well, maybe it's because of all people, Harry Call knows that someone is always listening and at its essence, what is a belief in God but that? There's little things that he puts in the screenplay that you can really read into. And it's just very clever because it allows for him to have a confession scene, which is, you know, there's so few opportunities that where he really speaks his mind truthfully. And, and you can see how cleverly Coppola puts them into the film. And the one time he has a confession to another human being who's not a priest on the other side of a confession booth it's recorded, which is just a brilliant moment. It's a, it's a fascinating screenplay. There are very few American screenplays that are comparable to it. I, I think what I love about this particular era in Coppola's work is that it's, it functions both as uh, a work of art and a form of mass entertainment. Like it's such an entertaining film as well. It's it's totally – I mean, it's an unusual film, but it's entirely accessible. I absolutely love that opening shot. You know, I talked about how this focuses in on 
the guy that you probably don't think of. And just the way that the camera picks him out of that uh, crowd in that uh, in the public square where we're following all those different characters and especially we're following uh, Robert Shields the mime of uh, Shields and Yarnell fame which I also kind of think that that mime might also be a little nod to Antonioni and the whole um, tennis match that they're playing in blow up but that we're following the mime and he's going around and mocking everybody and then we come to him and Harry and then the way that uh, we f- continue to follow Harry and it's just like, okay, out of all of these people, it's kind of that like going through the city and panning around the, you know, all of the different apartments or uh, hotel rooms. It's like the beginning of uh, Psycho where it's like, okay, of all of the hotel rooms, of all of the places in the city, we're going to focus on these two people. And in this one, it's just we're going to focus on this one schlubby guy with this weird transparent raincoat and the most innocuous looking person in the crowd is who we're going to follow through the rest of this entire story. Yeah, and that raincoat. A very special yeah. raincoat. Well, you know, the thing that I love about this film and, and Coppola's movies in general, again from that period, is that it feels so real to me. It feels so authentic and yet it'll have little touches like that, like that very strange raincoat that he wears whether it's raining or not, which is semi-translucent, which is obviously a metaphor for who he is and what he does. And and there, there are numerous shots where people are partially veiled by a semi-translucent material. And his name is Call, spelled like, you know, the kind of call that covers a fetus in the womb. So there's a real poetry, like a poetic device motif that's in play. And yet the film feels, you know, at times almost documentary-like. And as you're pointing out in that opening scene, it's shot like a surveillance scene. It is a surveillance scene in a sense. And I know when they shot it, they had six cameras going and they were all really long lenses and they effectively shot the scene for what it was. Um, So it feels utterly believable in the convention, that great sequence at the convention that they go to for all of the um, surveillance salesmen was a real convention. And so it has a kind of semi um, documentary quality to it, and yet it's so constructed and artful at the same time. It's a very special blend that he he did so beautifully. Coppola's made it clear. He said, "Look, if if I hadn't have started on the the big studio epics when I did, uh, my entire career would have consisted of the conversation movies like the conversation of that of that very intimate scope." Now I'm glad he did invest his time in, <laughs> obviously in the in the studio epics like The Godfathers and the Apocalypse Now and so forth. But um, that's another thing about Coppola. He's great with finding the the intimacies in the epics that he does, and he's great at finding these very epic brushstrokes in the intimate character movies he does. Uh, he's just a he's just a master at all of it. Coppola reminds me a little bit of Soderbergh with the way that Soderbergh does the, you know, one for them, one for me kind of thing. And with Coppola, he did have the wherewithal to do, okay, yeah, I'm going to do The Godfather, much to his chagrin. He did not want to do that movie. You know, why why the hell do you want me to do this just because I'm Italian-American? Doing that and then doing Godfather 2 and having this sandwich in between. And he had the wherewithal after something like Apocalypse Now to go back and try something like One from the Heart, Rumblefish, The Outsiders. 
it always kind of reminds me of like, you know, George Lucas always saying like, oh, well, I just want to do smaller films. I want to do art films. It's like, well, what's stopping you? You know, like, I don't think Coppola could have made this version of the conversation had he not had the clout and the money that he had from the Godfather. And I think he needed to do that balancing act to go from one to the other and be able to, to, to actually make the conversation. Cause I don't think that any studio would have been rushing to say, Oh yeah, let's make this small little film that looks like a 1960s art film. And yeah, sure. Here you go, Francis, here's all kinds of money. He was trying to make it for years. He had the script for, for years. And of course no one would give him the money. And I believe the film was made with this thing called the director's company, which, and I'm having to remember my easy riders and raging bulls. There's an interesting story related to that, which is that it was a company that financed the films of three filmmakers. So this was the concept. It was going to be Francis Coppola, uh, Peter Bogdanovich and William Friedkin. I believe the films were cross collateralized. So, you know, they would all sort of share in their success or failures. And, and of course it was (laughs) for that reason, it was doomed, but the sister film to this was paper moon, which is also a kind of perfect film. And, and then I don't think Friedkin ever made one with them ultimately, but, but I think that's how the film was financed. Uh, and it was jammed between the Godfather films. In fact, I don't think the studio really wanted him to make this movie. It's just that he had, at that point, the power to do so. I also believe there's a point in the the editing of the film where they were having some trouble with it, where he told Walter Murch, who is the both the sound and picture editor, just put it on a shelf. Because he was, he was obliged to go and make Godfather 2, and he just was unable to figure out how to finish the conversation. And in fact, they hadn't even shot the whole script. They shot, it was a, it's a crazy long script. It's a, like over 150 pages. And they, they just wrap photography because they ran out of time without having shot 20 of those pages. Coppola was just like, I, I don't have time to think about this. I'm going to put it on the shelf. And it was, it was Walter Murch who swooped in and well, didn't swoop in. He was already the editor, but he, he insisted they finish and found a way to finish it. It is a kind of weird little miracle of a movie that was jammed between these two giants. Yeah, he was on fire. And and isn't it the, the conversation and The Godfather 2 were both released and nominated in the same year? So, I mean, what do we have akin to that in modern times? Maybe like you said, Soderbergh, I think he had Brockovich in traffic. But that's pretty much the closest kind of one-two punch that I, I can think of. That's really amazing. Yeah, I had heard that he hadn't finished shooting and uh, the the audio commentary. I have to say that this Lions Disc Blu-ray is really good. I was very surprised. Like, I, I thought the conversation of all of Coppola's films, that should be, like, on a Criterion release. But this uh, Lionsgate Blu-ray ends up being a fantastic release and has audio commentary from both Coppola and Merch. And the way that Merch was talking, it sounds like they had, uh, you said 20 pages. He was saying something like 10 days to go. And the whole thing of, um, Carrie and the Amy character who's played by Cindy Williams, that that scene of him having a quote unquote dream, that that wasn't necessarily a dream originally. So I was like, wow, that's, kind of amazing he's like oh yeah we didn't have enough to support this so i turned it into a dream sequence i was like 
that's kind of wild and that really works, especially with all of that fog and that sequence and that you can barely see her again, characters being hidden. I thought that was a fantastic way to go. You know, I think it's an example of a movie that has such a strong ending. Like it, it speaks to the power of endings because really when you think about it, there are surprisingly few films that have great endings. There are a lot of films that have satisfactory endings, but there aren't, a lot of movies that have great endings and this is a great ending. It's one of the best endings of all time. I think I feel like when you have a situation like that narratively, it, it permits you to mess around with what leads up to it. Like I think that that basic infrastructure that that it had held together, regardless of whether they were able to shoot those extra 20 pages or not. So yeah, no, it is amazing. And there are other things that Walter Murch had done to, alter the structure of the film one of them being that i'm forgetting the character's name but the convention girl who's maybe even a prostitute who um sleeps with harry she was originally supposed to have stolen some equipment from his loft Uh, i'm not sure how the tape was taken from him but at any rate walter merch came to this realization sort of when they were in trouble that oh no she needs to take it she needs to be the one so that it inspires Harry to move on to the next beat in the story to just give it more, you know, narrative momentum. And so they actually shot an additional couple shots on the set of Chinatown to uh, <laughs> just because they needed to borrow a camera for a production that happened to be shooting for um, Paramount and uh, did an over the shoulder shot uh, over Harry to the uh the recorder and then sort of reconstructed that plot beat. I was rewatching that bit today and I was, I am trying to remember if we even see Hackman's face or if it's just somebody's body and hands that we're seeing, like kind of stopping the tape recorder and looking through the empty boxes because yeah, that is kind of brought in later, but it makes total sense narratively that we've had, at that convention, which is such a an incredible showpiece for this entire film, so much of the the story takes place via the convention and the stuff that happens that night. We've seen the Martin Stett character, played by Harrison Ford, at the convention. We're introduced to the Meredith character, uh, the Elizabeth McRae character, at the the convention, and then Harry talking about destroying the tapes in his sleep as uh, it's well, it's kind of in his sleep also kind of as they're making love and then him waking up to not having the tapes there. It's perfect. It, it just adds up so well. Had the equipment been missing. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. That means that the Alan um, Garfield character, Bertie Morin, that he had hired her or told her to take stuff, but instead now it looks like Stet has hired her or told her to take the tapes, which just, it's perfect. It makes total logical narrative sense. Yeah. You would never know. And that's what I appreciate so much with merch, just being able to bring that analytical mind into it and say, okay, well we need to revamp this. Like the, the way that he splits up different scenes to, give us the pause between Harry working on something, going someplace else, and then having to come back to the tapes. And that means that he's now reevaluating it rather than having that all as one continuous scene. It doesn't mean that he's reevaluating the tapes, but by breaking it up, 
now he went the second time, it's like, oh no, he's getting new information from them. And it's because he's had this encounter with Harrison Ford. Yeah. And didn't you say something like, um, <clears throat> De Palma pointed that out as a cheat that the delivery is different from, from take to take? Yeah, the delivery of the, the, the crucial line in the tapes, the Frederick Forrest line of, he'd kill us if he had the chance, rather than he'd kill us if he had the chance. That was Merch recording the lines three different times, and at one point, Forrest emphasized a different word, and he kind of logged that away, and then he said, oh, okay, now at the very end, he'll switch it and make it so the emphasis is on a different word. And yeah, apparently... De Palma was like, no, 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 that's not right. You're cheating. I adore De Palma, but pretty much everything is a cheat. When you're seeing two people talking on a sofa, uh, unless you're constantly moving behind one or the other and then in front, every cut is a cheat. It's just using the form uh, to its advantages. Once again, more than the technical stuff, I I love the entire film. But when the paranoid thriller aspect of the film really kicks in and you and this mystery starts to unveil itself, I'm actually less interested in that than the building blocks of the character leading up to that point. And then where the character ends up and all the little morsels that De, that, uh, De Palma, that Coppola puts in uh, throughout the movie. Um, the fact that he records moments between human beings and yet he can never have a genuine one himself. The fact that he has a lover who is clearly a secret and he tells her, I don't have any secrets. There's layers upon layers upon layers. He lies about his age to his lover. He inspects cookies before he decides whether or not to eat them. There's this, there's this distrust that's just embedded in him how the movie speaks to the time in which, which it was made where I think it's saying we, we can't remain untouched by this. You know, we are all touched in some way by what is happening around us. And I think the last shot is indicative of what was so strong about a lot of these character studies in, in this period of time in American cinema, because more than anything, I think the movies of that time dealt with alienation uh, and just if you take that still of him just sitting in the middle of destruction, uh, I think that just epitomizes that, that dynamic. Not just the him sitting amongst that, but also the camera and the way the camera goes back and forth like it's a surveillance camera in the corner of the room. And I love those moments where the camera will do that or where the camera in Coppola's word is dead, where you've just got a camera. Like the first time he comes into his apartment, the very first time we see him do that, there's a setup where the camera is just sitting there and he's moving around the apartment and the camera never follows him. He's just, he's moving into this room. He's crossing. He's moving into that room. So we'll catch those little glimpses of him, but really it's just this dead camera waiting there and then every once in a while he'll move to a a spot long enough where it's almost like oh i have to move to to see him i've talked about this on the show a few times when we've been talking about polanski's work like the tenant and rosemary's baby and repulsion and just talking about that idea of having an apartment is not a sacred space. And Harry just realizes that so much in this, especially when he comes home and there's that bottle of booze waiting for him for his birthday present. And it really feels like 
his it sounds like it was the landlady there's a lot more when it comes to like all of the tenants of this building when it comes to the script when he calls up the woman but what i wanted to talk to you about was uh how did you put it in the apartment uh-huh right well what about the alarm oh you did Well, uh, yes, I thought I had the only key. Uh-huh. Well, what emergency could possibly... All right. Yes. You see, I, I would be perfectly happy to uh, have all my personal things burned up in a fire because I, I don't have anything personal. Nothing of value. No, n- nothing personal except my keys, you see. Which I, I really would like to have the only copy of, Mr. Van Mr. Van Leesta, how'd you know it was my birthday? Nah, I, I don't remember telling you. Would you like to take a guess how old I am? 44. Well, that's a very good guess. Mr. Van Leesta, as of today, my uh, mail will go to a post office box with a combination on it and, uh, and, uh, and no keys. And when he asks her, how old do you think I am? And he's looking at the birthday card that says he's 44 and she guesses, quote unquote, guesses 44. I'm like, oh, so she's going through his mail as well. So not only is he getting violated by someone going into his apartment, he's also getting somebody who's snooping through his mail. And now it's like even worse for the snooper. He's being snooped on multiple ways. And uh, I just love that. And I love the way that he just tells her flat out, I'm going to have all my mail sent someplace with a combination lock so you can't get into there. And it's just, he's very snotty about it, but he's very just plain spoken and doesn't even raise his voice. But again, that's why I feel like the movie is so relevant to this moment, because I feel like we're all turning into Harry Call. You know, here I am in my little empty office room alone with probably two or three cameras pointed at me um, <laughs> and speaking to you guys through this device. And and that's probably the way a lot of us conduct our daily routine and this sort of fixation and fetishization of the technology for its own sake makes its, him like as a character who was sort of, as, as you said, Jamie, you know, an alienated outcast at that time now feels like he's sort of the average human being. It's an odd thing. I've been thinking a lot about 70s cinema lately and, um, and the, because I think it was such a special time in movie making because the movies were engaging in the culture. And even more than that, the culture was engaging in the movies in, in a very uh, pronounced way. And so there was this engagement and involvement. And I look today and I see an apathy. Um, but then when you look at the conversation, and like I said before, something like Chinatown, are they predicting that, that kind of apathy setting in? Because both of them get burned by getting involved. So, and, and it's not a criticism. I think it's what makes them very interesting to ponder what exactly they're, they're trying to say. And both of them are getting involved in things that are 
to use another phrase, you can't fight City Hall. And that's exactly what Harry and what Jake are trying to do is fight City Hall between that elder statesman of Noah Cross or be it whatever. Is this the corporation? Is it a government? Whatever kind of nameless type of place that Robert Duvall and Harrison Ford are working for. And eventually we find out that I always want to call her Shirley Feeney, Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest are also working for this corporation seems to be able to do whatever it wants. And I'm not sure. Is it a corporation? Is it something governmental? But whatever it is, it's too big for Harry to take on. Which is again, the kind of David and Goliath uh, aspect that that ran through a lot of cinema back then, but there are also mm-hmm. there are also the the heartbreaking moments in the conversation, and there there's one small one uh, that barely registers, and it's when he goes to see his lover, and she because he doesn't share anything with her, he essentially gets frustrated and starts to walk out, and she says, I, I you know I won't be here when you get back, or I might not be here when you when you come back. And there's this half beat where you think maybe he'll turn around and actually talk to her and open up to her. He doesn't belabor it. He doesn't make it this big dramatic epiphany, but it's just barely detectable. But, uh, and that's a heartbreaking moment to me because there was a, there was a, just a split second where he might have changed things for, for himself. And then of course, when he gets, when he does, come to some sort of confession to this woman at the, uh, at the after party. And, uh, he is bugged the scene that uh, Vincenzo alluded to earlier, which is equally heartbreaking. This is what's so difficult about crafting a character like this, because on the, on the outside and what he wants to be, it's very simple, plain and unobtrusive. But in fact, he is enormously complicated and I think that also is mirrored in the music for the, for the movie, which is this solo piano, very simple, and yet you listen to it and it's just notes upon notes upon notes. You know, it seems simple, but it's actually a very complicated theme. So even that uh, mirrors, you know, that the inner turmoil of that character. I love when that theme gets crazy towards the end of it when it becomes more pounding upon the piano keys than something melodic and the use of the electronic sounds that merch is putting in there even from the very very beginning when we have that opening shot that i was talking about there is introduced that kind of electronic distortion and it really the very first time you see this movie, it might take you by surprise because it's like, what is that? What is happening? But then we're going to get that through so much of this movie, that same type of electronic distortion. And even when it comes to some of the quote unquote screams that happen in this movie, because there are some pretty unpleasant moments that happen in the third act, those screams are almost purely electronic sounds, if not purely electronic. And I love that he uses that and makes that the case that the bloody hand on the window <laughs> you're like holy shit what was that uh I, I don't know have you have you spoken to david shire for this podcast i have not i i've been trying for years to talk to fred ruse to talk to coppola to talk to merch to talk to shire so none of this stuff has worked out unfortunately 
I talked to him years ago and he said, cause the conversation is one of my all time favorite themes. I'm a sucker for piano themes anyway. But, uh, and he said, I was so excited when, when I got the call, Coppola wanted me to, to compose this. And I thought the Godfather, big orchestral, you know, the stuff that I've been dying to do. And he meets with Coppola. Coppola's like, no, just, just a single piano, just a solo. Piano. <laughs> <laughs> and he got him deflated. He's like, ah, but I think it's one of the great scores of this decade of the seventies. Well, and he says he got a lot of work out of the score too, which I appreciate. Mm. I think people realize just how genius the simple nature of it was and then hired him off of that and i don't know why i'm such a dumbass because coppola is talking on the commentary and he's just like oh blah 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 my brother-in-law did the score and i was like oh yeah talia shire okay that makes sense so coppola was always good for hiring relatives they were married he yeah uh, david and talia oh because he's married to something like frenchie from greece now isn't he Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Something like that. Jamie, you're bringing up something that's really central to the film, which is just it's absolute minimalism, mm. both both in terms of the audio soundtrack and the visuals in the, the, the graphic simplicity of it, and which is all, I'm sure, about loneliness and emptiness. And again, that's what's so amazing to me is as a director – I completely identify this as Francis Coppola's work, but it's so different than anything else he did before or after, you know, because I, I always think of his films as being so lush and operatic and, and this one's just stripped down. I was working on a, a film long ago and which had a similar dealt with some similar themes. And I, I remember that was a point where I referenced this film and there's a lot of, uh, silhouettes and flattened images. And of course, he's using long lenses a lot too to get across this notion of surveillance. But, you know, the image being flattened and reduced to two dimensions and, um, and, and frames within frames. And it's a very, um, it's, it's, as you pointed out with the theme, it's, it's very simple in some regards or very stripped down and yet so beautifully complex at the same time. Absolutely. And you think of um, the two movies that Coppola made that year, The Conversation and The Godfather Part Two, And you consider the final shot of both, where a man sits alone in their own way, contemplating, what have I done? Isn't that, isn't that interesting how, how both of them have that in common? No, it is. That's a fact. I never made that association. That's a wonderful, that is a really great observation. And and then in doing a little bit of research for this, I I learned that Francis Coppola as a child used to bug his family. I mean, used to bug his family as in he used to <laughs> plant microphones around the house. And uh, and then this the story that Harry tells uh, the Cindy Williams character in his dream is autobiographical. That all of that stuff happened to Coppola. So so you can see that even though this character is obviously far in a way, a very different kind of person. You can see that he's still infused it with himself to take it back to if the movie is a metaphor for filmmaking itself. uh, Maybe there's an element where he's saying, look, we have responsibilities as filmmakers, (laughs) as, as, as the technicians, you know, whatever you're doing on it, whether it's sound or, or film or something like that. 
Right. Or as artists. And that's the other amazing, I think it's such a good point. It's, that's the other fascinating thing about this is the way he treats the surveillance artists, so to speak, that they really, they, you see their passion for their craft. You see how they function as a little subculture. You see how they are, they're like magicians trying to learn each other's tricks. And, um, and guess what? That's exactly what filmmakers are like. And then you, of course, you have the showy guy at the surveillance conference and the, and the after party, uh, the guy that's a major showboat, uh, the complete opposite of Harry Call. And you know, Harry Call's thinking, how can you be good at what you do if it's impossible for you to be incognito? I mean, you're just, you're, you're you know, like you, you might as well be like a Christmas Day parade float or something. Yeah, Harry needs to have that anonymity so he can walk amongst the people at that square. And I can't see Burt Morin doing that because he wants to get his picture on everything. And I'm surprised he doesn't have a big picture of his face at his booth or something. Just, yeah, he is such a showboat. And I, I love Alan Garfield in that role. I think he just makes it sing. And I'm so curious though, because apparently they originally wanted to have Timothy Carey in that character. And I cannot imagine what he would do to that role because he is such a different actor than Alan Garfield. I, I I try to picture it in my head, but it just doesn't come to me because I mean, first off, he's probably two or three feet taller than Alan Garfield, and then just such a different presence. And Garfield just seems like 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 he is, like a little guy, like wanting to he's not necessarily overly short, but he's just like one of those like very tenacious, he's almost like a little, you know, uh, a little dog like nipping at Harry's heels. Like, come on, Harry, you and me, I just need to have a look at your stuff. And I'm just like, oh man, Harry, do not let him look at your things. You are gonna be done for if that's the case. And yeah, just always bragging about himself. Though I was so fascinated when Harry brags about himself at that one point. There's that one little chink in the armor when he's just like, nope, I did it with three microphones and here's how I did it. And it's just like, wow. But I have to say the Alan Garfield character is very impressed by that. It's customary for Coppola. I mean, the the precision in which he casts his, his supporting players uh, is unrivaled from that period of time in cinema, I think. And, uh, you know, can we talk about how great Harrison Ford is? I mean, uh, rewatching it uh, the other day, I thought, man, Harrison Ford is creepy as hell. <laughs> Coppola says, I didn't really write this role to be that much, but Harrison Ford really came in and made it his own and even brought his own wardrobe. Apparently that sweater that he wears later on in it is his and just, yeah, really made that role his own. I... It's like he's great in his little role in Apocalypse Now, but in this, he is just fantastic. He is fantastic. And it's worth saying, I mean, you know, we know who Harrison Ford is by now, and he is not a showboat. So when we say that he's especially creepy in this movie, it's not a mustache twirling kind of creepy. It, he's, you know, it seems like he's doing nothing. He's just, he, just his presence (laughs) is off putting in, in the movie. I'm just so fascinated by that time and all of those 
artists that work together to see Robert Duvall and I, Billy D. Williams is in this, like all these people that circulated through George Lucas's universe as well. And my God, they're so brilliant. It's uh, it's that whole San Francisco scene. I've just always been, there's something very magical to me about what American Zoetrope was, and particularly at that moment before it, you know, there, there's a whole long, that's a, another podcast, I'm sure, but a very lengthy history behind what America, American Zoetrope was and how it evolved over the years. But at that particular moment, you know, it really was a group of filmmakers who were in some sense trying to recreate their um, film school experience, but on their own, apart from the studio system. And they had not only were they a group of filmmakers, but there were a group of actors that they worked with. And all of these people circulated with each other and influenced each other. And it's like a like a really fertile, beautiful moment in American film history. And and this movie, like all of the you can see that Terry Gar is in it. She's incredible. Um, yeah, Cindy Williams, <laughs> who, of course, became was she Laverne? No, she was Shirley. Frederick Forrest and John Cazale is amazing, of course. Yeah, it's just, it, it, you feel like the energy just kind of pulsing off the screen. I mean, American Zotrope was a very romantic notion. And like, and like everything romantic, it, it suffered a horrible death. <laughs> <laughs> it really did. It's so tragic. And an early quick death, too. Like, it, <laughs> it wasn't around for too long, but it just seems like there was this opportunity i was again doing a little research before the podcast and you know um the, the originally uh american zotrope had their relationship with warner brothers and that that relationship was terminated when warner brothers saw thx 1138 george lucas's first film um but if they just held on to those people a little bit longer can you imagine the benefits that warner brothers would have reaped from those talents, let alone what the world would have received. Because when when that deal was canceled, the all the projects that Coppola was developing at that moment were killed. Actually, a couple of them survived, and the conversation is one of them, of course. A few of them were resurrected. But there was a whole slew of projects that they were developing at that time that just vanished. There have been so many filmmakers that I've talked to that have gone like part of their origin story is and then i went out to san francisco to meet with francis ford coppola you know that was the place that you go and he was for lack of a better term the godfather of independent film for a long time and so so many filmmakers would head out with their first film with their shorts with all this stuff and try to meet with coppola because he was trying to bring that dream to life and doing it somewhat but there's a lot of promise to your point there's just a ton of promise so so many people were just like we have to meet with this guy and hopefully we'll get our break and to be clear i mean the 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 flaming out of zoetrope i think it had a lot to do with one from the heart uh if i'm not mistaken and in a way that was romantic too the flame out because you know he went out swinging. He he went out like you would expect Coppola to go out, putting everything he had into his vision. You know, sparing sparing nothing. He was going to put it all out there. Uh, you know, even if he ended up homeless on the other side of it. You know, it's that commitment that I find very very romantic as well. Absolutely, it's a totally unique uh, moment 
in film history. There's nothing like it before and, and really nothing like it afterwards. There was one story that he told in the audio commentary that I didn't realize that. So I, I kind of figured the idea for Tucker, a man in the stream had been kicking around for a little while because that's just the way that Coppola works. But he said that he wanted to shoot it as a musical. I am very hard pressed again to think of what Tucker, the musical would have been like, but for God's sakes, I so want to see that. I wonder who would, who would have written the music. Maybe Tom Waits and Crystal Gale. I don't Maybe. know. Maybe Prince. <laughs> Maybe Prince. Maybe there's a musical version with Prince uh, doing the music, and they pulled it. Little Red Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> the other story that he tells that um, kind of plays into what we were just talking about is the limousine that Cindy Williams is sitting in at one point. And that that was a limousine that was owned by Francis Ford Coppola and that he and George Lucas went to pick that out. There's this whole thing where he uh, was grousing about being driven to the set of The Godfather in this little shitty car. And he was just like, where's my limousine? I need to have this limousine. And Paramount's like, listen, if you make X number of dollars with The Godfather, we'll buy you a damn limousine. So when that happened, he and George Lucas went over to the, this car dealership and just picture George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola at this time in the 70s. These two shabby looking guys with the beards, and this is at a time when beards were not necessarily in fashion. So no one at the car dealership wanted to talk to them. Finally, they managed to get one sales guy to talk to them, and they said, this is the car that we want. Send the bill to Paramount. <laughs> and that's how they ended up with the car that they put in the conversation. In terms of the paranoid uh, thriller aspect of the film, there's, uh, I think it speaks to the time also because uh, in, in this whole contraption, uh, ultimately, if you think you know who the good guys are and the bad guys are, uh, you're, you're wrong, probably. Um, so I think that that speaks to the political tumultuousness of that time too. Well, I definitely see the opening at the square as being a stand-in for Dealey Plaza, and especially when you have the the guys who are basically triangulating the crossfire up on these higher positions and. Maybe it's a third floor book depository. I don't know, but there's one guy over here. There's one guy over there. And they're both focusing in these microphones onto the mouths of, of Sidney Williams and Frederick Forrest. And sure enough, they look exactly like gun sights. They even show us a POV from one guy as he's trying to get those sights onto their mouths. And I'm just like, oh yeah, this is such a stand in for an assassination movie. And the very first time you see this movie, you might think that that's what's happening because you you don't necessarily know that those are microphones rather than guns that they're pointing at these people. And yeah, it's like, oh, we need to get rid of this couple. They are a threat of some sort. And maybe it's just that they're having this affair. And yeah, you're right. They pull the rug out from under us because we think, well, maybe they're talking about this. Maybe they're talking about that. Maybe they're, they just want to have an affair. Who knows what it is, but then we eventually find out the truth and it is a surprise for us. And you're quite literally seeing the weaponizing of information. Like when those, when you see, it's a very potent image, the, as you pointed out, the uh, microphones with the gun sights on them. It's such a fresh idea. And, and, and of course, it suddenly became hyper relevant in, in, in the uh, wake of Watergate, although I know <clears throat> all of that was going on while they were making the film. So it wasn't really a response to that. 
But then now I just, and I'm sorry, I'm harping on this, but it just seems so extremely relevant to this moment. Like it is all about the weaponizing of information to see that in a movie that is, how old is that now? That, that, that it was released in 74, 45, if you're talking, yeah. 45, yeah. But it, it's so, it's such a great point, the weapon, weaponization of information. And it's also reflected in the opening shot of all the president's men, where each stroke of that typewriter sounds like a bullet. Yeah, which is actually written into the screenplay. Like it's, it was done with such intention. Yeah, it's, an, it's, it's funny how those, these two, you know, I mean, this just feels like history repeating itself, of course, but here we are, you know, again. And, uh, and I, yeah, it's, it, that, I think that was also a moment in America with, that probably preceded the oil crisis, but there was a, there was definitely an apocalyptic cloud <laughs> hanging over people's heads at that time, at least psychologically. I, it seems like there's a lot of common thematic threads going on, which is why when I watched it again recently, in fact, it feels like it comes around every 10 or 20 years, but, um, uh, because I recall there was sort of a, a callback to the conversation in the late-ish 90s, mid to late-ish 90s. I remember the film. I think it was because of Enemy of the State. That movie mm-hmm. came out and, and it had, in a weird way, Gene Hackman reprising his role, um, except with Will Smith. And it feels like the film comes around. But again, it just feels, having watched it for the podcast, entirely relevant in a way that – um, if you looked at Blow Up now, I don't think you'd feel the same. I mean, Blow Up is a great film, an incredibly important, innovative film, but it it definitely feels like it's weighted down by the time that it was made in. There, there are aspects of that film that you know seem terribly naive, fifty plus years on, but but there's nothing naive about the conversation. Blow Up's the same arc. It's the same story arc. He, get, he gets involved and he gets burned for it. I mean, you see this over and over and over again. And many people believe that something like Blowout could be considered the last film of the, the last great film of the seventies, even though it was released in 81. It feels akin to that period of time in movie making. Did I say blow out because I meant blow up? Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. That's fine. I think there are echoes in here too of things like Jimmy Hoffa. Things like the RFK assassination. I mean, we talk about, uh, the, there's mention in here. I mean, there's things that are quote unquote innocuous enough of, uh, you know, oh yeah, he's the guy that told, uh, uh, Oldsmobile that, uh, Cadillac was going to lose its fins or whatever that is, or General Motors. That's what it is. And then, um, then there are things like the family being killed and them being, uh, teamsters. So I'm like, well, that's kind of Jimmy Hoffa esque. And then Alan, uh, Alan Garfield talking about, you know, oh, I did this thing for this presidential candidate and you notice that they're not president and it's like oh okay so i mean that which is funny that this is being shot during the when the watergate stuff is happening you know the, and and that they kind of presage they didn't even necessarily know that the people that did the watergate break in were called plumbers and here you've got harry next to a freaking toilet and drilling the hole in the wall and it's and laying underneath and probably the one of the most uncomfortable positions i've ever seen him laying underneath that uh that sink trying to drill the hole through the wall and flushing the toilet to cover the noise yeah another that toilet you know you can't keep it suppressed i mean after a while it's it's going to bubble up and flow over 
I read such a good article, and I wish I could find it again, talking all about repression. And it was just such a Freudian take on the conversation and just the idea of, you know, the repressed memories and the repressed uh, emotions coming back. And then also talking about that Harry was stuck in the anal phase of, of uh, his uh, development. And I was just like, oh, this is great. But I, I couldn't find that again to be able to credit the author, unfortunately. I'm sure there's a, a diabolique influence on this as well, because I know that uh, the uh, Henri Clouseau film, because I know that Coppola was a huge fan of Henri Clouseau. And and one of the thing, things that makes the film so special is that it is a, a very unusually potent blend of character study and thriller. Like it's a it's a real tightrope walk balancing between those two things, which weighted one way would tip the film into being one thing and waited another would tip it into being a, something else. And it, it really does accomplish both. The one thing I'm surprised we haven't talked about is just how freaking great Gene Hackman is. I mean, I think it kind of goes without saying at this point, but Gene Hackman, I mean, we've talked on this podcast, I don't know how many times about just his roles and whether it be 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s up to when he quit acting but my god is he amazing in this movie and i just the the physical transformation looking at him as popeye popeye doyle versus him as harry call and seeing the way that he transformed with that haircut with the mustache with the glasses with the coat and you've got those physical trappings but he inhibits or sorry he inhabits that role so perfectly and he's just so freaking uptight just the way that he walks the way that he carries himself the way he talks and then you, you know you brought up the catholicism the way that he he uh just gets so ruffled every time anybody takes the the lord's name in vain that that exchange between him and Kazal when they kind of have that falling out that to me is like masterclass in acting to see those two guys go back and forth because they were both at the top of their game. And there's something about Hackman where his performances feel so effortless and lived in that when he plays a character like this, for this character, any kind of interaction or outward emotion takes great effort. To see that that dichotomy at work with one of our most effortless actors that gives the movie a real tension i mean i you know i think he's just this this is a time vault performance if there ever was one and it's so far away from what he normally would do he is so repressed he is so and it's so muted i always think of him as delivering very naturalistic performances but i never think of them as being i usually think of them as being really dynamic and very attention grabbing and uh and that's not the case here. It must have been terrifying for him to play it that way because it, it you know, it could, it's the kind of thing for an actor it could blow up in your face where you just come off as flat. And um, yeah, again, I, I feel like the film just ages so well because the performances in his, of course, in particular, are I'm sure as potent now as they were when it came out. Yeah, it's the de it's the very definition of nuance. His performance because it's this balancing act between. Don't show, show just enough. In those moments where he is obscured, you know, we've talked about that kind of prophylactic uh, raincoat that he wears, but then those moments where 
during that uh, the scene with Alan Garfield where he will go behind the screen and be talking behind that translucent plastic. And it's just, you know, just such a nice theme that Coppola has of the whole idea of obscuring things there. When we see him later on through the glass in the, uh, the bathroom, just, or through the shower curtain, just things like that. It's just like, Oh, this is so nice. But yeah, I love that. There are moments where it feels like he's purposefully going behind that, translucent plastic in his office and that has <laughs> harry call is an interesting dude that he's got the cot in the office like he's that married to his work that he will sleep in his office and that his office is basically just this huge warehouse space with enough room that john Cazell can drive his uh, motor scooter through it and just the way that everything is so in its place, even though it looks messy, but you can tell everything is in its very, very particular place when it comes to that workroom and that he is so into that space. And I love the, that that space has so many ins and outs and that there's the cage and there's the cage within the cage where he, as soon as he has company in that area, he'll take his plans and put them in that separate area. He'll lock himself away even more. Yes, space is important. The space between you and the subject you're recording, obviously, that's one example. But also, in his in his work life, that scene in the after party, I was particularly struck by when I rewatched it recently. There's the space between he and the girl as the girl's trying to get closer to him. And, and it's angled in such a way that it accentuates that space between them as it kind of very reluctantly closes in a little bit. And uh, just in terms of, you mentioned Kazal, one of the greatest runs of any American film actor in history, partly because, you know, he was taken away so soon, but uh, he is, uh, I mean, what can you say about him? He's just a giant of an actor. And it, every time you see him, you realize how much he gave in these five or so movies and how much we lost from the ones he didn't get to do. There's a touch of Fredo in this because if you if you look at him uh, when he kind of turns traitor at the uh, surveillance convention, Kazal played shame better than any actor <laughs> any actor I could think of. Well, and it is that same kind of relationship with Michael Corleone, where it's just like you know you're not giving me any any leg up, you're not giving me any part of the business, any part of the family, and in here it's you know hey you you you're not trusting me harry you're not bringing me in you're not bringing me close but and i i don't know if he necessarily knows that harry can't bring anyone close to him but this him keeping him at a, at arm's length at arm's distance really hurts the Kazal character stan and i can see why he turns traitor as you say and that also then really hurts harry but more than hurting him he's then immediately afraid you better not tell this guy any of my secrets that sequence, the party sequence in the loft, is unbelievably long, but great. Like it's an it's a movie unto itself. But it's it's so interesting seeing that exist in a film because that would never survive in a contemporary movie. There's no way because I don't and I didn't time it. I'm not sure how long it goes on for, but I have to assume it's at least 15 minutes. Like it's a long sequence. That sequence has so many different beats to it as well and 
you know, Jamie, you mentioned the distance between Harry and the girl Meredith at the it, while they're trying to talk. When they finally get together and he confesses, and then things get broken up by uh, more people coming in. I love that long shot of those two and the way that he's dancing with her and that Kazal's going around with the scooter and the way that the guy jumps off the back and then she gets onto the back and it's all done in that really long take that, that long distance away from them. And it just, it's just breathtaking to see that and that that is yet another scene within that longer sequence of the after party. You're right. It, it is ridiculously long, but it sets up so many things. Yeah, it has its own buildup and it has its own climax and reveal. And it's really, um, it's, it's magnificent. The one thing that I noticed today that I had never picked up before, one of Harry's things that he does is to play along with records and that he plays his saxophone. That's kind of his only real passion outside of the entire uh, surveillance game is him playing along with someone else's work. And the very last shot that we were talking about before that gives us so much information, so much stuff is just so stunning. I never really picked up on that. He's playing along with the score. He's not necessarily playing with a record at that point. He seems to be playing with David Shire's music, which is it's very close to breaking the fourth wall that he almost seems to know that we're watching him and that he's part of this movie as it were, because he's playing with the score rather than with something that's pretending to be played on screen. There's actually something oddly hopeful about the end of the movie to me, because you see somebody who basically destroys everything that they care about. And then is reduced to this very, you know, base version is sort of they've they kind of reset themselves as sort of like they've, you know, broken themselves down. And now as he's playing that music, you almost feel like he is kind of free of himself and that maybe he's going to start building something. He might be. And that's an interesting point about these character studies in general, too. And what makes them so much different from a lot of movies we see today in that you can imagine a life taking place outside of the time frame of the film. You're wondering what happened to Harry Call. You know, I was having an interview the other day with with a, a professor about five easy pieces, and I said, "What do you think happened to Bobby Dupuis?" I mean, those those are the questions that I love because, and it shows you how potent these movies are from the '70s, in that there's there's a life that expands beyond the screen, and I I don't want to believe that Harry Call became the guy in Enemy of the State. <laughs> Well, let's talk about that a little bit when we come back after this break, and we're first going to play just a few brief messages. The New York Times calls Ovid.tv a haven for indie gems. You can watch hundreds of feature films and documentaries on Ovid.tv from directors such as Claire Denny, Deborah Granick, Shohei Imamura, and Chantal Ackerman. Most of Ovid's films are not available on any other service. From now until December 6, 2019, save 50% off your first three months of Ovid.tv. 
just head over to www.ovid.tv, that's www.oviddot.tv and sign up with the coupon code PROJECTION at checkout. The offer expires December 6, 2019, so act now. like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album. In detail, they'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Satellite imagery coming through. Roger that patch visual, my location. Subject entering lingerie store. Hi. Hey, hi. So you want some lingerie for your wife? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I'm not really experienced in this I, I mean don't get me wrong i mean i'm i'm experienced you know i don't want to come in here and look stupid <laughs> too late <laughs> yeah, yeah. should have gotten our watch robert clayton dean was innocent freeze there times 10 we have reason to believe that mr zavitz may have passed sensitive materials to you uh, what kind of material sensitive so let's get into his life have you bugged it, Mr. Dean? Move to audio three. He was unsuspecting. Hey, hey, find the wrong house. Hello? Eric! Mr. Dean! He was unaware. You are the only woman in the world for me. You and Janet Jackson. <laughs> Coming your way over. Now, what he doesn't know... I'd like to report a break-in. ...could kill him. Request immediate keyhole visual tasking, maximum resolution. He's on your six o'clock. You have something they want. Two targets, rooftop. I don't have anything! Maybe you do and you don't know it. You're a threat now. To whom? Everyone you know. Target's on the move. A name, a phone number? No, nothing. He didn't give me anything. You know how many federal agents you had following you? Stay exactly where you are. 
able to use every means possible to get what we need. From Jerry Bruckheimer. Get the cat. What's the cat's name? Babe. Producer of The Rock. Come here, baby. <laughs> baby, come, come, come here. A film by Tony Scott. Target is on 21. Director of Crimson Tide. Is this about me? 20. Do they know me? 19. Who is that? 18. He jumped to 17. Do they know me? I don't know what you're talking about. Will Smith. You're one of them, aren't you? Former conspirer. Switching, target switching. Gene Hackman. This man, this is our problem. You live another day, I'll be very impressed. It's not paranoia when they're really after you. Tell them to stop it now! Enemy of the state. What the hell is happening? I blew up the building. Why? Because you made a phone call! All right, we're back and we're talking about the conversation. So, yeah, Jamie, you brought up Enemy of the State, and I think, Vincenzo, you you mentioned it earlier. And um, not necessarily an official sequel, though they definitely use a picture of Harry Call when they are talking about this uh, character that Gene Hackman is playing. Though the Gene Hackman character, man, he's, he's kind of MIA through the majority of Enemy of the State. Um, he shows up at about 59 minutes in and then he shows up again i think like an hour and 20 in and i just i don't know i feel kind of bad for gene hackman because it feels like he's better than and he's in there with a lot of really good people but it feels like he's better than anybody else that's in the cast and just that this movie is really to me anyway kind of below him i i I saw it on an airplane and i that was in the 90s <laughs> i don't really remember it that well but i remember it being very very tony scott and very bruckheimer i'm kind of torn on this because i think gene hackman was better than a lot of movies that he did um uh, but at the same time i'm i'm empathetic to the idea that you know actors got to work that's what they do we go to the office every day that's their office they need something to do so, and, and I don't, I'm not necessarily a fan of Enemy of the State, but in general, I do really like Tony Scott. I think he was a bold avant-garde director who made Hollywood blockbusters. I think he found a way to do that. So I, I, you know, I don't think he's a hack, but, uh, I just, I was never impressed with that, with that movie, Enemy of the State. And by the way, I don't mean to say that Tony Scott is a hack because I, I have great affection for him, but it was... Tony Scott has certain proclivities and it definitely, I remember, I just remember feeling that mm-hmm. <laughs> watching the movie. It's well, a totally I, kind of completely, it has its own set of um, expectations and is trying to accomplish very, very different kinds of things. But it, in a way speaks to how much Hollywood had changed in those intervening, whatever it was, 20 years. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's, th- those are two interesting movies to contrast because they're kind of, they kind of, uh, epitomize what what happened to movies (laughs) not to go off on a tangent but now enemy of the state almost feels like an art film compared to what's out there you know in in mainstream cinemas like it's become so like you wouldn't or not an art film but hollywood wouldn't make enemy of the state anymore it's it's not commercial enough are you saying that enemy of the state is not cinema Are, are we gonna are you making a scorsese argument no, no, I'm saying no. Actually, I'm, 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 I'm giving Enemy of the State a, a pat on the back because it's the kind of film that Hollywood wouldn't make anymore. They don't make thrillers for adults anymore. That's not, um, yeah, that's, that's not true. part of their, their uh, whatever their game plan. So, um, 
it's yeah, things have sort of changed, even gone further down that path. Yeah, I won't call Tony Scott a hack, but I'll say that he made some hacky films along the way. Like, I have never been able to sit through Days of Thunder, but then I could watch Beverly Hills Cop whenever. I love The Hunger. I really like Crimson Tide. Uh, the Last Boy Scout is one of my favorite films. So he's done some great work. And yeah, Enemy of the State. I, I mean, I just, I didn't like it the first time I saw it and I liked it even less this time watching it, especially it's a real mistake to watch that movie right after you watch the conversation because you're, your, your TV volumes at probably about a 10 watching the conversation and the speakers are going to get blown out as soon as you put any enemy of the state on because it is just like you said, it's like a Bruckheimer film where it's just boom. We're doing explosions. We've got crazy music, fast cutting, all this kind of stuff going on. Like we've got all these overhead shots to show us that we're just like little dots on a grid kind of thing. The funniest thing to me, though, is watching a movie like this and trying to tell it apart from some of the other films that were made around this time, because I'm sitting there going, okay, there's a room full of computers, and we've got, who's in this one? Is it, it's Jack Black, Jamie Kennedy, Seth Green, Bodie Elfman. Okay, that, that sounds about right. And then I'm thinking about something like, uh, The Jackal, and I'm like, okay, well, that's got Jack Black. Who else is in there? <laughs> And I'm just like trying to think of those rooms full of computer type movies where you've got like uh, just a handful of actors who played computer nerds. I was really surprised that Ted Raimi wasn't in this movie. It's interesting that a lot of those movies do bleed in together. And most of them were released by Hollywood Pictures. <laughs> there's there's this thing, there's this phenomenon where a lot of these movies are coming out on Blu-ray now. And so I look at the release dates of all of these, I'm looking at the titles and I'm thinking – Oh, that's got to be a Hollywood picture. And sure enough, oh yeah, it was. It's why uh, so many like disposable uh, carbon copy movies week after week. But, uh, you know, Tony Scott, um, uh, Enemy of the State is bland, uh, which I don't, didn't necessarily expect from a Tony Scott movie. But you, on the flip side of that, you look at another Tony Scott collaboration with Jerry Bruckheimer, Crimson Tide. And, and that is a movie that is rife with tension, which is especially impressive because it's not a typical action movie. There really aren't any kind of standard action sequences. A lot of that tension emanates solely from the performances. Well, and there again, you've got Gene Hackman just doing such an incredible job. And in that, I think he can spar with Denzel Washington a lot better than he can with Will Smith. At this point, I think Will Smith in his career didn't have the weight. You know, he, he was like a flyweight at this point. He was, he needed to really work on his acting muscles. I mean, he's done a lot more since then. And at this point, Gene Hackman could just bite his head off and chew him up. Yeah, and maybe that's why the movie suffered. Maybe they were trying to find a way to make it a Will Smith vehicle, whatever that whatever that was at that time. And uh it didn't it didn't ring true to the nature of what the movie should have been. It but swinging it back to the conversation for a moment, I think you made a good point that the enemy of the state kind of attacks you whereas the conversation you really have to lean in to the movie and pay close close attention like it the the film kind of demands your attention. Otherwise, you are going to miss things. And in fact, it sort of demands to be seen and heard in a, a good environment. I 
I imagine when I probably first saw it on VHS, I missed certain things because they were probably just cropped. <laughs> or maybe the sound, you know, the sound wasn't good enough. Like it's, you barely know that Robert Duvall has been murdered by the end of the film. I mean, that's almost open for interpretation. So it's a, it's a, it's a special film in that way and that it really, uh, you know, it's asking a lot of its audience. Yeah, movies used to ask the audience to invest in them. Movies used to expect you to meet them halfway, and you would get more from them the further you met you you met them. Um, you know, but uh, I I rewatched it on the Criterion Channel, and uh, it's a great Enemy of the State. No, <laughs> <laughs> the co- well, if The Rock and Armageddon can be on there, I thought Enemy of the State might be too. No, 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 no. And I was I was so happy that it was on. Uh, you know, they just posted it this month, and I said, "Oh gosh, we're about to talk about that movie, so I I better re- rewatch it and brush up." And Criterion, that channel is just a great educational tool for me. Yeah, with Enemy of the State, they don't hide anything. They are just kind of spoon-feeding you stuff, showing you the original assassination right up front, showing it to you on video, I think at least three or four times. And there's this weird thing that they have because we are trying to trying to make a statement about the surveillance state, but not necessarily doing a good job about it because there's this whole thing about this Tom Sizemore character who has been recorded and Will Smith shows him the tape and Will Smith is playing this uh, criminal lawyer. And then he uses that idea of Tom Sizemore wanting to know who shot this tape in order to then eventually trick John Voight and his goons who include Scott Kahn, Barry Pepper, whatever happened to Barry Pepper, and Jake Busey it gets all of these guys into a room and then somehow tricks them into thinking that one's talking about the assassination tape while the other one's talking about the Tom Sizemore gangster tape. And they eventually, kind of like true romance, just end up having this big shootout where everybody's shooting each other, but luckily Will Smith can hide under a table. There's no like flying feathers or anything else like sprayed across, because I know Tony Scott loved to have that, but you know, the, there was that kind of moment. Oh, and then also the FBI is outside watching stuff and yeah, so that that's how Will Smith saves the day. But um, yeah. I, I I I tuned out to what you were saying about five minutes ago. But it's 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 true. You know, Tony Scott and I think somebody like Joel Schumacher, who I also love, they were they were both the kings of unmotivated fog. <laughs> <laughs> it's very ironic though, because there is a character, Will Smith's wife, who's played by Regina King, who I know more now from some of her more recent roles, including uh, being on The Watchmen. And she is just railing about the surveillance state. And I'm looking at the timeline for this, and I was just like, wow, this is 1998 when this is coming out. And it sounds almost exactly like they're talking about the Patriot Act. So it's just like, this is really kind of prescient, because they're even talking about people blowing up buildings and doing all this stuff. I was like, oh, wow, this isn't a post-2001 movie. That's very surprising to me. And of course, John Voight being the political bad guy who's talking about liberal hysteria just seemed very prescient to me as well. Yeah, John Voight, you know, I, I have such warm feelings about John Voight because he was so nice to me, but 
Uh, and then I look at the movies that he made, the first part of his career, and they're incredibly progressive. Hell roles. yes. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a legacy you, you wouldn't recognize in, in the present in him. Yeah. The last movie I talked about with him in it was An American Carol. It's his deliverance, I guess. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch you every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his strike pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make her head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it, and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keys. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometimes, somewhere, they've got to meet. That's right. We'll be back to wrap up Noir Vember next week with a look at Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Vincenzo and Jamie. Vincenzo, what's been going on with you lately? I know one thing in the tall grass, but what else is going on? I'm starting to work on a series for Amazon based on a William Gibson novel called The Peripheral. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, which has uh, long been a dream of mine. Um uh, with uh, Jonathan uh, Nolan and Joy, and uh, yeah, uh, kicking around a few things. Oh, that's great! Yeah, I know you were like set to do Neuromancer all those years ago, so that's great that you're able to get back to Gibson Town. Oh, I can't believe it; it's so wonderful. And Jonathan Nolan, he's no slouch either. No, he certainly isn't. Yeah, talk about a great surveillance state kind of thing. His uh, the one that he did with Jim Caviezel uh, and Michael Emerson that was on TV for so I long. That was yeah. Oh my god, that was a great show. How's the reception for In the Tall Grass been? It's been really amazing, actually. It's um, Netflix, unfortunately, won't permit us to give actual numbers, but it was the way I put it is: had the film been released in three thousand screens in its first 10 days, we would not have been able to 
in every and in, if every show were sold out, we would never have um, got that many people to watch the film as we did on Netflix. Oh wow! It, it really is. Um, it's it's just it's very interesting. Speaking of the surveillance state and <laughs> uh, and the power of information, like it's you know when you drop a film on Netflix, it drops in a hundred ninety countries simultaneously. So um, so yeah, it got a lot of eyeballs and. Um, uh, yeah. Again, I just feel very fortunate. That's interesting. I've had questions about this. So, so Netflix does share with its filmmakers the the viewing numbers. They do, yes, and they do it um, at very particular times. So, we have a conference call uh, ten days after it's dropped, and then one a month later, and then one a year later, and then they go in great details to how it's performed and how different territories responded to it and responded to um, the key art and so on. It's, it's really the whole Netflix machine is really quite fascinating. That's great to know because I, I've had, I have one good friend in particular and he's so anti Netflix. He, he looks at the ills of the world and he tries to as, uh, ascribe them to Netflix somehow. Uh, and, uh, and a big thing is, you know, we don't know their numbers. And I, I'm like, you as a moviegoer, what business is it of yours? Now, now I, I can understand the filmmakers wanting to know who's seen my, how many people have been seeing my movie? Are they liking it? You know, that's, that's completely valid, but uh, it's, Speaking of a romantic period of time, I long for the time when box office wasn't a sport. And I, I think this Netflix model is is a wonderful return to that in a way. It is. I mean, you know, not to make this a whole other conversation, but um, but it permits you to do things that would not be permissible in the theatrical marketplace. Like my film is a little bit odd and it just it would never have gone through had I been put through that system, the, the film would have been the corners, the edges would have been rounded off. And, um, I just don't think it would have survived because everyone was looking at, would look at, well, what did it do in its first weekend? And then on the Netflix platform, they actually don't really care about the first weekend. They care about its long-term, um, reception. It's everything is inverted. It's weird. It's a very, for, for your friend, it, it, for what it's worth, every, you can just tell them that anything a studio does, they do the opposite. For, be- for better or worse, but it is, a, it is an entirely different paradigm. Yeah. Well, I, I saw your film last night and I loved it. So I wanted, I, I thought it was such a, an impression, so, uh, impressive the way it was visualized and staged. So I, I was, I was very taken with it. And I saw it, of course, on Netflix. So I'm reporting my viewership to you. <laughs> Vincenzo's got a little, uh, thing on his wall where he goes over and just like, Tick one more. <laughs> it's like Steve Buscemi and Billy Madison. But really, to, not to go on about it, but I, I think the conversation is this sort of, you know, they have planted this little time bomb in terms of its importance because I see it now. I go, my God, like it's all about this stuff. It's all about how we're listening to each other and about how we're cut off, cutting ourselves off from each other technologically through technology. Um, it's, it's such a, and you know, we're obsessive voyeurs now and it's just, um, yeah, that, that film is, has aged so beautifully. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like with the conversation, I think the most ubiquitous piece of technology in that film, cause I don't, I mean, we see a television, we see Harry watching 
the Flintstones, but for the most part, it's all about the telephone. And even though we have the telephone, which is supposed to be this tool of communication, people aren't talking. And it becomes more of a tool of threats than it does or, or of, uh, you know, either overt threats from Martin Stett or implied threats or just, uh, just a way to, um, listen in on people, just like the way that, uh, Bernie has his little harmonica thing, which I found also ironic because it so reminded me of the whole Captain Crunch thing and how the guy used the Captain Crunch whistle in order to crack a phone and be able to make long distance phone calls wherever. And that was the first step into this larger world of hacking that we have even today. Yeah. It is, you know, someone is always watching, someone is always listening. And we, we live with that reality every day and we know it, but most of us just don't want to know it or close our eyes to it. Everywhere we go, it's being tracked. You know, I remember when, um, Spielberg did Minority Report and in order to put together that movie, he, he got together a lot of, uh, scientists, technologists, educators. What is possible in the year that this movie takes place and they and they gave him a host of ideas and he used most of them including one that any store you enter your your eyes are being scanned and they tailor an advertisement specifically for you and i'm thinking well they didn't need to go through that trouble they're already doing it on our phone anything you know so it's a reality now yeah the whole idea of your phone listening to you i mean it sounded so paranoid the first time I ever heard somebody say that, but then the first time that I started to see ads pop up that were related directly to a conversation that I had that I never searched for online, then it really started to get scary. Yeah, no, somebody needs to do Harry Call at Cambridge Analytica. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, even when I uh the last time I went to China, I called up my credit card company and I said, Hey, listen, I'm going to go to China. I don't want you to, you know, flag any purchases while I'm over there. And they said, Oh yeah, we know you're going there. I was like, how do you know that? And they're like, Oh, from your purchase patterns. It's like, Oh, thanks. Okay. So that was a little bit more than scary as well. Well, Jamie, speaking of listening and people listening in on you, what is happening over at movie geeks United, sir? Well, big things will be coming up. We're, we're moving away from blog talk radio and we're going to start on a different platform that I'll announce whenever I make a final decision, but, uh, we're kind of rebranding the whole enterprise. So movie geeks United will encompass at the moment, three different podcasts. There will be movie geek weekly, which will be a weekly hour long show kind of in the format of 60 minutes where there will be three or four investigative pieces related to movies, you know, but one segment might be a movie review. The other segment might go to a festival. The other segment deals with something in the headlines that week. So that'll be movie geek weekly. Uh, we do have a Blu-ray show every month. We're going to make that weekly. So you'll know what comes out on Blu-ray and streaming week by week. And that show is called the blue report. <clears throat> and then the big thing is a new series called movie geek yearbook. And we're opening on 1970 and we're devoting a segment to every film that was released in the United States that year, uh, a sig you know, semi significant release. So the first season of that, the 1970 season will be 160 movies. And it, each of those movies will have at least one guest to speak to, to speak to the movie. 
in many cases, five or six guests like mash. I've got five or six people talking about it. And, uh, so we're constantly booking guests for that. Uh, we've got Tom Skerritt and Roger Corman and Louis Gossett Jr. And Jane Alexander and on and on and on. So I I'm hoping that series comes together. It's coming together pretty well so far, but it's a, Mammoth undertaking. I mean, it really is. Uh, but it, it gives you, it's interesting because just like we've been doing tonight, we romanticize 70 cinema and rightfully so because the great films of that period have survived and endured like, like no others. But you know, the ratio of good to bad to brilliant is a, it's probably about the same. It, when you go week by week. And you examine every single release, you know, but there's some colorful stories, even the bad movies. Somebody loved them. You know, somebody cared for them. Somebody wanted them to be great. There's a story there. So, uh, those are the kinds of things we'll be uncovering in this series. And I'll, I'll post premiere dates, uh, on our, on our social media accounts, Movie Geeks United and at our website, moviegeeksunited.net. Well, fantastic. That sounds great. I can't wait to listen. Thank you. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Once I was invisible
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.